when you have to tell the story or you will fucking die, then you can tell the story. I invited Dr. Cox into me. I choose to stay in a lane of love and inclusion. That's where I live. And I don't mean hippy dippy granola shit. I mean, <laughs> I've been impacted by the special needs community. That the, I, that's where I live. And I'm you, the Michael Anthony Show. And I show. Ah, John C. I, I'm a storyteller. That's just that's who I am. I've always been a storyteller. We'd all come out here in January and February and seek out couches. The sinking sand of despair. The smell of dread in the air. I'm head to toe in my own fear. I'm going to die and I need to cry. Ah. And today, um, quite honoured to be joined by a good pal of mine and one of the great living Irish Americans, Mr. John C. McGinley. How are you, John? Never better. Thanks for thanks for putting this together for us. Obviously, you take a lot of pride in your Irish heritage. But would you actually like to be Irish? Are you glad that you're an Irish American? Because for what you sacrifice in terms of that kind of pain and that storytelling and history, you do you do have the benefit in terms of opportunity. So are you happy to be the American with the Irish option? I will I will tell you this when when the, the confluence of COVID and our former president were colliding at their most profound moment about a year and a half ago, I, Nicole, my wife, Nicole, and I very, very seriously were looking at places down towards Kinsale uh, to move, to relocate the family. And I was going to sell this place. Um, I'm in Southern California right now. And I was ready to get out. I didn't. Um, because my son, uh, who I have custody with from, from his mother, that piece would never be able to be worked out. And Max, who's 24, 23 or 24 now, um, and was born with Down syndrome, I would never be able to manage kind of a custody uh, balance with Maxie. Uh, if I could have, uh, I, was, I was ready to get out. I've had enough of the former president and the mismanagement of a global pandemic. And I felt like it was time to go. I did not. So my actions speak louder than my words. But to your, to your point, I'm very, very comfortable in Ireland. I can go there every single year for the last almost 30 years. I'm there for almost a week and a half to two weeks. They collide a lot, don't they, though? Like in terms of what you yourself would like about Ireland is kind of the serenity and authenticity amongst the people and that kind of honest conversation it is kind of the polar opposite to what we at least perceive to be the hollywood world no i don't i don't know about that i've never lived in town i live outside of uh los angeles and the community i live in is very family oriented uh everyone's got kids and you know soccer on the weekends and and I bring everybody to swim practice and, you know, I'm what, if I'm not working, I'm daddy, the driver. And I like being daddy, the driver, because as you may or may not remember or know kids chat in the car and that's when you can pick up a lot of inside scoop. And so I love being daddy, the driver. And so in other words, 
I'm picking up your kids and I'm picking up everybody else's kids and I'm taking them to soccer practice and then I'm bringing them home or I'm bringing them to swim or I'm bringing them to pottery. And all this stuff is very suburban. And uh, I, I don't, I don't, I never got, I got, I was too late coming out here to get caught up in the vortex of what one perceives as Hollywood. Okay. It's always just been kind of a, uh, a place to work for me. Yeah, if you want to live in town in Hollywood proper, uh, a, you need some money. So it's hard for uh, beginners to live there. Uh, and B, there's no property. So if you got a house in town, it's in, in, t- in town, I mean, in Los Angeles slash Hollywood, uh, you're going to have a property with no lawn or, uh, especially as a, as a beginner, you, you know, you don't have any money. I used to sleep on Nick Cage's couch when I came out here um, for pilot season. You know, we all used to come out, we'd beat a retreat out here in January and February for what was a, a traditional pilot season for TV, you'd audition your tail off. And this is, I'm talking a long time ago when there was no cell phones and you couldn't, yeah, yeah. you know, record yourself on a cell phone and send the audition that way. You had to be in the room. And so we'd all come out here in January and February and seek out couches. Did you give yourself a time limit for whether or whether or not make it when you're sleeping on Nicolas Cage's couch and you have no money and you're you're just as you said auditioning your ass off and there's so much kind of confusion and lack of certainty I think you give yourself four or five weeks and if you get any nibbles you stay if don't you're out and you're back in New York auditioning for stuff in New York uh and it's a really it was a very concentrated period of time and it was a feeding frenzy for all the networks uh who were trying to produce all these these pilots and that now has become a year long thing. Uh, so um, that dance has been spread out over the whole year now, but uh, coming out here, I was, I was just sleeping on couches. I certainly didn't look, I did talk radio for the play that would Oliver would end up shooting as a film. I did it for two years and that was a hit off Broadway play at the New York Shakespeare festival. And we were making $318 a week. And so, and that was a hit. And so that's an employed actor in New York in a hit making $318 a week. The, your, your agent's taking 31, it's taking 10%. So the agent's taking $31.80 off of yeah, that. Yeah. The government's taking pretty close to half. So your take home is about 160 bucks. What was it about your youth and childhood that made you want to get into the storytelling business? I've always described it to uh, being Irish, to tell you the truth. I just... I was a born storyteller. I didn't, I don't feel like I had that much to do with it. So I, I don't have a specific answer to your question other than I, I cast my fate to the wind and where whatever my heritage dictated, it spoke louder than any plan that I had. And I trusted that. That's a big deal. I asked Al Pacino the same thing. I said, why do you we did, we did any, Oliver's film Any Given Sunday together, and then he put me in the, we did a revival on Broadway of uh, Glengarry Glen Ross, which yeah. is the single most exciting thing in my life. But I asked Al one night, I said, why, how come, how come you do this? Because you, you, you're so okay, you could do anything. And he, and he just said, ah, John C., I, I'm a storyteller. That's just, that's who I am. I've always been a storyteller. And I felt, I felt the same way. And I can't, I can't assign that to anything other than I trusted it. 
And I had no right trusting it. It, it felt like such an act of arrogance. But yeah. um, I, I, I trusted that. I did. Did you want to be an athlete at one point, though, when you're in high school and stuff like that, and you're playing wide receiver? Was that the original dream, to be a, yes. to be a sports guy? Yes, 100% yes. At what point do you give up on that? In college. As soon as you get to college and you see you when you used to be a big fish in a little pond and then you get to college and you see these guys are so superior and that you could, you could be on the team, but you're just going to be on the practice team and you're just going to be a tackling dummy. Would you think sport is less about then kind of mentality than the arts? Because you clearly had that resilience or determination to survive in a very tough industry. But do you think when it comes to things where you have to use your physical body, sometimes you, you're just going to get smashed up and there's nothing you can do about it? I, I felt like the best thing I got out of sports was it, it validated the sense of discipline that I have as far as training and preparation went. And I, I had it just, it, it was clear as day that that was imperative um, in, in football and track and field and baseball and basketball. It was all about preparation and what you were willing to do. And that's the way I felt, I've always felt about acting that what I always tell t- kids when I'm teaching them, it's it's over over prepare under promise and then drop the hammer mm. and those are the three things i want you to do i want you to over prepare under promise because when you over promise you're fucked and then just drop the hammer and nobody even knows what hit them and what about competitiveness do you think there's a link there between in sports kind of having an opponent and needing to be better is that something you take into the performance business as well i think that could be a mistake um i think you have to have some competitiveness and some leather skin when it comes to rejection because as a young actor let's let's hypothetically say you have five auditions a week when you're really out there hustling there's a really good chance you're going to not get any of them for months on end that you go into five auditions a week for, I don't know, 10 weeks, that's 50 auditions. And there's the vaguest odds are you're not getting any of them. And what happens is that if you get too tough and, and you start to protect yourself too much, you lose your loveliness and your loveliness. I always think of as in the little prince, um, when, when, the, when the little prince Saint Exuberé's book, when he, when he befriends the fox and the fox starts talking about the, because he tamed him, that he's, he's the most precious thing in the world to him. And what's precious has to still be, it, it can't be covered by, by callousness and, and the actor's need to, to protect himself from rejection. And I see a lot of actors all the time who are just so tough and they're just, they're not going to let this bother them and they're going to get through this thing and it's okay. And that, that elevated sense of self-preservation, which is completely natural and understandable, stomps out your loveliness. Yeah. And that's your loveliness to me is what makes you unique in all the world. And that's what the Fox tells the little prince and that you're, that's, what you what's unique in all the world and 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 that's what you can't lose but it's the first thing to go because you're just trying to not drown and so it's very tricky it's very tricky in the pre-dr cox role which is what you're most known for and what many of our listeners 
would of course um kind of hold affection towards did you always think that role was coming and there's a player called Eric Cantona and his career before he met Ferguson before he went to United everyone saw he had this endless potential but he, he never found the right theater and when he went to Old Trafford it looked like that's what he was born to do not not just be a footballer but be a Manchester United footballer as someone who kind of had that drive and determination to make it an acting was the kind of idea of a Cox role a motivator or were you willing to just keep going at what you were doing before that I, I was lucky enough to to I, I call it the film train I, I boarded the film train early on and I for some reason got it in my head that once you got on the film train you never get off and so I was doing four and five films a year for almost 20 years. And uh, I just thought I didn't really have a plan other than I knew I was supposed to stay on this train. And if I ever got off, it was to do a play or, you know, get paid to do something on TV. But I, I just, my only plan was to keep working as an actor and not go back to be a waiter or, or any other um, means of, of, making money. And then my son, Max was born and Max was born with special needs. Max was born with Down syndrome. And we were in Los Angeles here and I didn't want to go away for, you know, sometimes you used to go away for four or five months at a time. And I didn't want to be away from Maxie because he was dealing with some pretty profound challenges right out of the, right out of the gate. And it would, it was preposterous to, this is going to sound completely counterintuitive, but very few things get shot in Los Angeles. They get cast here, but then, you know, you, you pack your bag and you're off someplace. Yeah. And that Scrubs was going to be shot here uh, was very attractive to me. I, I wanted to be here with Maxie. And uh, that was the only plan. Uh, that was the whole thing about Scrubs was being near Max. And that was more important to me than staying on the film train for the first time in my life. And so I got off the film train and I, I, I got on board the Scrubs locomotive and that thing ran for almost 10 years. And so it, it, uh, it wasn't something I ever uh, planned or aspired to uh, this Dr. Cox role because the, the other thing was working so well, banging from, you know, doing seven films with Oliver and making these movies, uh, you know, whether it was going up to Alcatraz with Nick and doing, doing the rock or, or going down to Buenos Aires and doing doing Highlander number two. I just I, I was I wanted to to be a storyteller, and it seemed like these this adventure that I was on was was working out. So I stayed on it. When you see Cox though as a character, it does seem, and I know he can say this about many roles, but when you watch you play Perry Cox, it just seems to a viewer that there has to be a lot of the actor's personality actually in this character. A hundred percent. I think that was a time in I'm, your life thing, though, with, with the birth of a son with special needs, the need to kind of be that loving but disciplinarian at the same time who kind of respects the people who look up to him whilst offering them kind of stern guidance, which is something that's necessary in all types of parenthood. Do you think that time in your life suited what Cox was perfectly? Yes. And also fundamentally, I, I never... Not never, but I, very few times have I ever been in the, the 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 Robert De Niro school of becoming some character. I invite the characters to me, which means 
And I had a discussion with John Malkovich, John Malkovich about this once. And John just said that there's nobody he knows better than himself. And there's no college of eccentricities that he can borrow from and dip his performance ladle into than the John Malkovich pool of eccentricities. Mm -hmm. And I feel the same way. And so I invited Dr. Cox into me. And so while there are plenty of things that are different about John McGinley and, and, and Perry Cox, I um, mean, he's probably infinitely, you know, intellectually wise, much smarter than me. And I don't think I'm smart enough to, to do some of the medical things that, that a lot of these doctors do. But I understood, I invited him into my rhythms and, and my heart. And my heart was my son. And so to bring Max and my love to that set every day mm. is what set Cox apart. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. that, what, to, to bring Max and inclusion and love to that character who was battling against that, he didn't want anybody to know about any of those frailties. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so that, that contradiction and to bring Max to Cox and allow Cox into Max's love is what, and the, that, the camera then sees that and it's radioactive. That's the stuff that sparks because that's not bullshit. That's my truth. Yeah. And that becomes Cox's truth. And that's what the camera suffers as good acting because I'm not bullshitting the camera. I'm bringing my core love, Max, to that hospital every goddamn day. And whether Cox liked it or the, or the writers liked it or not, that's how I was rounding the edges of Cox so that he never turned into Kelso. He couldn't turn into Kelso, yeah. not with Max in my sternum. And if that sounds too esoteric, it's not. It's, no. it's my truth. And that's how I approached every moment on that set. So the kind of arc of Cox and how he kind of became openly loving would you have known season one when you were reading and acting him that you know what this character is? You knew the soft side was really there. So the kind of writing wouldn't surprise you as much. And does the acting in those kind of sitcoms nearly force the writer's hand on many occasions? Because the way you inhabit the character nearly tells not the dialogue, not the style of scenes, but it tells the story for the, the actor's future. 100%. I, I was guilty of... <laughs> The first time I went into audition for Dr. Cox, and I only put audition in italics because in the script, Bill Lawrence, who wrote the thing and now is doing Ted Lasso, he's kind of the Norman Lear of his generation. Is he, is he the main the writer script, on Ted Lasso? Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. Bill invented Scrubs and he invented Cougar Town and he invented Ted Lasso. Yeah, that's it's a pretty astonishing guy and a dear friend. And I went in to meet him. And I had read the script, obviously, and in, in parentheses next to Dr. Cox's first entrance in the first show, it said a John McGinley type. And I went in and I said, Bill, I'm, I'm him. I'm the guy in the, I'm the, guy in the, in the parentheses. Uh, and it, it felt like I, all I was saying was, that, well, I don't know why we have to go through this whole audition process. Yeah. Uh, and... Then I did the most subversive um, thing. I, I said, I think as written, you and you have Cox and Kelso uh, peas in a pod. And I think they couldn't be more opposite. And uh, which is a really preposterous thing for an actor to come in and tell 
uh, an executive producer on a show, but it was my truth. I was like, Cox is not Kelso. And they were too, they were too close. Uh, and Billy took that to heart and he, he helped me shape Cox uh, to John McGinley and to Max. Was Kelso like a representative of society nearly and their attitude towards situations like the birth of Max? Like who did that kind of authority that Cox is fighting against? What part of John McGinley's life did that represent as you embody the character? You, you, you put your finger on it. It, it was more societal and, and those who don't choose to include the special needs community yeah, yeah, yeah. and those who choose to not elevate uh, challenges. And I wasn't down with that. Uh, I, I wasn't down with that at all. What was your relationship with your own parents in terms of, because obviously Cox and you have the episode where his sister comes, where he kind of, he's clearly, a lot of his defensiveness or kind of egocentrism is the result of an abuse of, or kind of what it was at the time, just a 1950s childhood. But your dad was a stockbroker, which is kind of, in a way, the opposite to the career you chose. Would there have been a friction there as well in terms of trying to prove a masculinity to a, an old school kind of Irish ancestry father that happened in your life that was part of Cox as well? Or? We were privileged enough to have uh, an amazingly inclusive uh, and, and privileged upbringing. First, we grew up in New York City and then dad was a salesman. So we followed him up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States. And so it felt like we moved once a year for, I don't know, for 12 years. And so you get used to it. And you learn how to make do in every new situation with a new uh, peer group. And my father did the most amazing thing. He, between uh, the first two years of college, uh, I said, I'm going to be an actor. And uh, I had been a a journalism student and an American lit uh, student. And he said, well, uh, you, you can't make that decision until you work on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange because our whole family is in the financial business. Mm. And so I did. I worked uh, for Henderson Brothers. I was an assistant to a specialist on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And I did it long enough to be able to have an honest, informed conversation with him. I said, I've now done this. I don't want to do it. Uh, I'm not going to do it. Uh, I'm going to be an actor and I'm going to train to be an actor like an athlete trains. And um, that's what I'm doing. And it was a huge, it was a landmark conversation because uh, it was man to man and it was informed. I had followed the protocol that, that the family dictated I follow. Uh, and I arrived at an informed uh, conclusion and I talked to him like a man. And at the end of it, he said, uh, if you're going to do this, do it well. And, and then he paid for me go to, to go to NYU grad, which was a seminal three years in my life. But he, he put his money where his mouth was uh, because I had followed what, what he perceived as a way to have an informed opinion. I worked on the floor of the exchange yeah. and I wasn't miserable or anything. I just it wasn't what I wanted to do. That wasn't my path. And uh, I'll never, uh, I'll never be able to appreciate it enough uh, how it felt to be treated like a man and making a man's decision with my father. Do you think that social media has kind of ruined that 
aspect of pursuing creativity because you have people dancing in one minute videos on TikTok now and they're they're becoming kind of well paid stars for and I know ah. some, some people can say it's taste and some people can say it's generational but it isn't it isn't good work it isn't it isn't you can't just dance for one minute and mime along to someone else's song and become a millionaire from it do you think that the accessibility of creativity is taken away from some of those kind of authentic decisions or people kind of attaching integrity and pride to it that isn't necessarily chasing fame, but chasing a dream? Or do you kind of feel for the lost souls of the 20s and 30s who wanted to be all these things, but they had to construct the Empire State Building and, and die that day as opposed to be a writer? Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a backstory that will uh, tangentially get to what I, how I feel about that question. For the one year I was up at Syracuse, which is in upstate New York, and it's it's on a, a lake called Lake Onondaga. It's this huge lake up in upstate New York. And University Syracuse University is on a hillside. And the the air blows across the lake in the winter when the lake is frozen, and it hits the hill, and it's this supercharged cold air, and they call it the lake effect. And it's so goddamn cold at Syracuse, you think it's fake. So I had to do something up there to get exercise. And you can't really go outside that much because it's so goddamn cold. And so I started to, I, I found a, a boxing gym and I started to fight. I started to uh, learn how to box, which I knew how to do from high school, but I, I really want to learn how to do it. And so I trained for I don't know when it got really cold. So like in October through uh, the end of February. And I had a, a trainer named Packy and Packy said, do you want to uh, spar with somebody after I got in pretty, pretty darn good boxing shape and athletically I could do it pretty well. And I said, yeah, I'm, I've been dying. I've been dying to fight somebody. And he goes, okay, I'm going to put you in with the, with Bob. And he puts me in with Bob and I could, I could make it around there okay. And then he hit me in the liver with a right, and it buckled me. Uh, and I'll, I'll never forget what that felt like. And my takeaway from that was that unless you have to box, unless you have to, you won't be good at it. Mm. And that's what I feel about with actors and storytellers, that unless you have to tell the story, unless you have to, if your life is depending on it, which is the way I felt. And I still do feel that when you have to tell the story or you will fucking die, then you can tell the story. And that's the way I feel when I see this stuff on social media, that it's, it's not a well-told story as Hemingway wrote. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's somebody exercising a prerogative, which is great. But uh, when I, when I tally up the total, it doesn't equal uh, storytelling. It's just, someone having a, a go, which is great. And it's, it, to me, it's, it's completely disposable. And uh, it, I don't feel like it hurts anybody. I, I can compartmentalize someone's need to flash. And that's fine. It hurts society though, doesn't it? It hurts society because the consumers and, and the youth, their standards of what they, of how their brain works even is, is lowering year by year because they're getting this quick information and don't even have time to think, read, or do anything that might challenge the brain. So the reason these people who are putting these poor standard stories, which are one-minute videos into society, are a success is because the customers now view that as what's great. So the question is, does that win out? And in 20 years, are we nearly finished with any kind of authenticity or honesty to storytelling? 
No, it's all that's all cyclical. I'm sure I'm sure people felt the same way about when TV came along. And I'm sure people felt the same way about when when movies started being shown on Netflix and stuff. Yeah, but yeah that's yeah. all cyclical. Look, storytelling's as old as fucking cave drawings. It's it's one of the oldest things that our tribes have done. We've always told stories. But has the brain and of the viewer we're... ever been as distracted? It's not necessarily about the stories that then it's now that there's a robotic element nearly been attached to the youth from having these phones. And it's it's more addictive, this kind of like people weren't addicted necessarily to Moby Dick. They they enjoyed it, they were moved by it. People were moved by the Beatles. They felt it, they felt emotions, but it wasn't kind of robotic, non-thought out addiction and this new content is kind of the processed food of creativity yeah but which, you, you got to remember i'm sure people were saying the same thing about the beatles when they came along that people who listened to strauss and Be- beethoven were probably going like well this is a three-minute fix that's going to destroy mm-hmm. music and so I, I can't imagine this conversation hasn't been had in the exact same blueprint but just focused on on the delivering of of media in in different waves and so uh, that's what i mean i think it's cyclical and uh, people will tire of this and migrate back to a well-told tale Uh, we need well-told tales and they'll always always reach the surface always and so i I respectfully disagree that it's the end of the world and that attention uh, that people's that it's hurting youth I, i mean what the fuck must have been people talking about when the who and the and 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 the rolling stones we're coming out with that shit. I mean, it was right before when I was growing up, but people must have thought it was the end of the goddamn world. Mm. And it wasn't. It was rock and roll. Which was an expression of pain, really, though. Like, that rock and roll was bred off the rebellion of that kind of 1950s post-war era against their traditional families and fathers. So it kind of resonated. But I don't really understand what this new content is rebelling against by the concepts such as not judging each other on really shallow issues. I don't, I don't necessarily think it's based on rebellion. That, that's where, I think that's where rock and roll kind of terminated in that your point is well taken. Rock and roll was born out of rebellion. And now I'm not quite sure there, what there is to rebel against other that, than that's what I'm saying, racism, though. which racism uh, was, which is what rap was born out of. And, and the horrible racism that still exists around the planet, especially in the United States, um, that that music form was born out of that, and but what but what is but I don't know if there's a rebellion in these one minute videos that you're talking about, other than people's need to be famous, and that's all ephemeral. And that, that's what I mean. But that's what I'm saying. That's, that's that's why I'm saying that back in the day when they had this conversation about rock and roll v Beethoven, at least there was an argument for the rise of rock and roll because there was a rebellion to it. This doesn't contain one. And therefore, it is kind of just the rubbish of creativity. Right. Well, then it'll it'll go the way of rubbish. It'll it'll just be on a pile pretty soon. That's what I mean. It's all all this shit is cyclical. When you the only the only thing that sustains is storytelling. Do you think the standards of sitcoms, TV, movies is as high as it ever was now? Well, I mean, the bar that, that was with, with all in the family and, and, and stuff like that, I, I don't know if you ever get back there since the guys, Norman Lear and those guys were inventing it. But uh, again, sitcoms right now, to me, feel a little uh, dated. And 
But I mean, somebody like Bill Lawrence, who's writing Ted Lasso, uh, Billy continues to to make the form fresh. But th those voices are, you know, they're generational. But as far as films and, and storytelling and, and the, the dramas that are on TV, uh, I think, yeah, the, all the writers have migrated to television because they want to get paid, first of all. And second of all, they want their content to be exhibited and seen. Nobody wants to write something and show it to their cousins at Thanksgiving. Mm. Who the fuck cares about that? They want people to see what they've written. And so the Netflix and, and the Showtimes and the HBOs, these writers are migrating there because their, their work is going to get exhibited. So it's fantastic. I, I, I think that the stuff I'm watching on TV is, and I'm a TV junkie is, is fantastic. What do you and watch? By the way, Atlanta? if you haven't seen, I watched over the weekend, the rescue, which is a documentary about the, the rescue of the, the boys soccer team in 2018 in Thailand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you get a chance, it's on Disney plus right now, or just seek it out. It's called the rescue. It's a documentary. It's the best film of the year. It is shattering. It's called The Rescue. When you're working in an industry like storytelling and you have to put so much emotion into it, can money become, although a day-to-day -day benefit, a fear from a creative point of view? Like when you start off as Cox in those first few seasons and the popularity of the show, and it's, it's been witnessed by tens of millions of people, and evidently and obviously salaries go up. Do you fear like that kind of change with the success of the character is it is it kind of a dangerous area of it maybe affecting the performance? Um, I'm not sure. It wasn't for me because the workload was so it was so huge. What the what they were putting, what Bill Lawrence was putting on my plate every week, that I I really didn't come up for air for ten years. I I, I put blinders on like a like a thoroughbred at the Kentucky Derby. I, I really yeah. I kept my field of focus so narrow. There was Max and there was Scrubs, and that's all there was for 10 years. I, I, went, I was divorced. I was single. I had no other variables in my life other than Scrubs and Max, and that was it. I, I, so the, the fact that we were getting paid was fantastic. Um, I would have done it for free, and it was so, so goddamn challenging and so hard that if I, I couldn't afford to look around or 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 assimilate too many too much other input other than getting those words in my head and trying to make them dance, and that's yeah. what I was trying to do every fucking day for ten years, and everything else was noise except for taking care of Maxie. The, everything else was noise, and I I had a priority and a and a, a work uh, a work sense that uh, even as I'm saying it now, it comes back to me as clear as day. Uh, I just nothing nothing was allowed to get in the way of what I was doing on Scrubs and with my son. Do you still think the misconceptions and kind of viewpoint society has towards? having a child or having a sibling or a nephew, anything, somebody with special needs is completely miles behind where it should be. Well, of course, when, when you can, and, and I'm pro-choice and I want, I think people should do with their bodies, whatever they want to do. But yeah. when you, when you abort a fetus because it's 21st chromosome is tripled, yeah, yeah. Um, that's, and it becomes just a common thing to do. And, 
maybe that's what you should do because you can't handle that challenge. And, you know, more power to you. But because it's become such an easy fallback, um, and 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 again, that it's a hard parenting decision. And I wouldn't it, pretend to ever tell anybody what to do with their body. I'm very pro-choice. Um, but it's there's a discriminatory aspect to it, though, isn't there? That is appalling, regardless of whether you're pro-choice or not. I mean, if the rates of abortion amongst any other um, community of individuals had the same kind of habitual pattern to that of people um, in the special needs community, we'd be out in the streets protesting against it. So I understand that rights... <laughs> That's for sure. It's a difficult situation because when do rights become rights? But we definitely seem to have a narrative in society and unfortunately accepted one that the, the rights of unborn people with special needs certainly don't exist in comparison to the rights of the unborn without it. I guess where my, I guess where my focus has landed after 23 or 24 years is dealing with the people that are here. Um, since I don't feel either qualified or um, strong enough, or, or I, I feel conflicted in trying to tell people to, what to do with their bodies, I, I, I don't feel conflicted. I, I won't do it. And so my, my focus has been on the young men and women and boys and girls who are here and they have challenges and they have needs that aren't being met and, 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 and medical attentions that have gone way far astray and primarily people born with Down syndrome. And so that's where how they're treated and regarded and derisive language, like the words retard and retarded um, as used as an insult or as an assault on our community, that's where that's where I've made my foothold. That's that's the battle I seem to have have taken on, and and language and as as a as a poker tell for treating this community as less than that think, somebody is less than. Whenever someone is less than, yeah. whether it's my African American friends or my Italian friends or my Jewish friends, whenever they're treated as less than. You're pushing my fucking buttons, and I want to be involved in that conflict. Do you think sometimes the love of parents, do you think there's an accidental patronization um, when somebody has a child who's born with Down syndrome that comes out of love, but sometimes parents treat a child too differently than they would a child without Down syndrome? The, cha the challenges of parenting a child with, with challenges, and especially um, a, a young person born with Down syndrome, are so profound. And the amount of overcompensating that a husband or a wife or a father or a mother has to do, it's so goddamn hard yeah. and it's so unending um, because that, that person, uh, whether it's Maxie or, or some other young man or woman who was born with Down syndrome, they're never leaving. They're never getting off campus. Maybe they'll have housing. Maybe they'll, but they're never getting off campus. That's a, that's a level of care that never stops. It is unending. It is fucking exhausting. And it's the greatest thing on the planet. So uh, there is an arrested development. And, and this isn't going to get that much better. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to stay at stage of the, of the, we'll make up the stages. There are 10, let's say there's 10 stages of development. 
This is going to stay at stage two for the remainder. And so there's that great Paul Simon song on the Gumboats album where he sings about breakdowns come and breakdowns go. What are you going to do about it? That's what I'd like to know. And it's a declaration of do. What are you going to do about it? Every day you got to pick a verb and you got to do something about taking care of this young person. What are you going to do about it? He or she can't feed themselves. He or she can't bathe themselves. He or she can't go down to the block without getting lost. I'm making these up as extremes. But yeah. you're responsible for all that yeah, because yeah, yeah. that person's not. They can't be held responsible for that. It's not in their skill set, and it may never be. So that's on you. So you got to pick up the slack, and you will have to pick up the slack, hopefully, for the next 40 or 50 years. So and let's go. It's a declaration of do. What are you going to do about it? And when you're in that position, the misfortune of it, do you ever look at Max and kind of envisage Max without the condition? I've never really had the courage or the vision to do that. I, I take Max completely for who he is and how yeah. perfect he is. And my perception of him as a, as a whole individual human being is... I feel so strongly and, and, and how he impacts me is so profound that no, I've never pivoted to something like that. I spent time um, back in 2009, I spent six months in um, a place in Dublin um, where a lot of members of the Down syndrome community spent their days. And Oh, right on. I found them to be some of the most uh, humorous individuals, whether deliberate or accidentally, uh, that I've ever met. But I also did ah, sense... That's pretty good. I, I did also sense amongst a few of them, particularly a guy called Dave Morgan. I actually don't even know. He actually might have moved on in recent years. But I did sense a knowledge based off dialogue I would have had with them over even something like a cigarette in which they would have expressed knowledge of the fact that there was something different about them according to society. You know what I mean? There, there wasn't the... Yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. You've because language is our biggest challenge. With Maxie, Maxie's biggest challenge is language. Uh, spoken language. And so we do a lot of indicating and a lot of uh, indicating is the best way I can put it that that suffices as communication. Um, and so I, I don't get a lot of those insights from Max other than he has, <laughs> he is a rascal. He is a hall of fame rascal and almost like puck in a midsummer night's dream uh, in his capacity to uh, be on the outside looking in or not necessarily a prank because right. A prank is something you have to construct and, and yeah. kind of let happen, but he's got a real rascal in there and it makes me smile. Even telling you the story. There's an awareness of the overthinking that we tend to do as individuals into menial issues amongst um, the people of the dancing community I met, met and they'd nearly at times be laughing at you for getting worked up over something so stupid. And there's a, <laughs> that's funny. There's a groundedness that's, and a reverence to really them. That, like they nearly do in many ways have a much stronger emotional balance than the rest of us who were kind of popping around the place, giving a shit about what people think of us and stuff. Like, is there also, <laughs> That's very funny. as a performer and as a human being, do you feel like you've kind of grown a lot in terms of what to value by being in the day-to-day -day presence of someone like Max? Oh, well, there's no Dr. Cox without Max. And it informs what I, a lot of times what I subsequently 
and I, I don't mean to sound arrogant, but things I've turned down because they don't speak to me and I don't care to participate in certain stories. And uh, like there was just this thing that this young guy sent me and, and to shoot down in uh, Louisiana, I guess right about now, but I, I worked on it with him for about a month or two. And it was a scary movie and I love scary movies, but I, I worked on it with him and I wasn't a producer on it. I was just trying to craft this tale with him. And about a month into it, I was like, what the fuck am I doing? This is like getting water out of a stone. And I was like, I, I'm not doing this. And I, unfortunately I, I dropped out of the project. I'm, I hope it'll be a good scary movie, but I just lost it. I didn't know what, I, I didn't know what the, the, what the there was, what, 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 what I, I couldn't understand, and I love scary movies. Don't get me wrong, but I didn't understand what the what the end game was, and I wasn't trying to overthink it. I know I get scary movies, and I just didn't understand why I was participating, so I dropped out. You know the way we were talking there about we were talking about that obviously it's not our business to talk about what people do with their bodies and stuff like that, but there is an imbalance, especially in Scandinavia, with the numbers of abortion. Yeah, I, I saw what those guys are doing. Is there a fear though? that you kind of can't say it because the world has gone so left-wing now that you'd have to be nearly careful about even commenting on something like that because it will be made be something that it isn't and you're just not arsed. No, if I, if I have a strong informed opinion about something, I, I, I've no, I, I don't care about the consequences. What are you going to, you can't, what are you going to do to me? I get plenty of money and I'm, I'm, I love my family and I'm, the house is paid for. Yeah. You can't so, get canceled really now. Well, not really, because we're good. We're squared away. But I also don't want to sound a fool on things that uh, that I don't have an informed opinion about. I guess I got that from my father having to work in the New York Stock Exchange before I was allowed to have an opinion in the McGinley family about being an actor. And so I don't feel like spouting off about different yeah, shit yeah. that I, I don't feel I have the right to spout off about it. I, I, I would I would want to take a fucking pipe to my throat if I had to listen to some jackass talk bullshit. And so yeah. I choose I choose to stay in a lane of love and inclusion. That's where I live. And I don't mean hippy dippy granola shit. I mean <laughs> I've been impacted by the special needs community. That the, I, that's where I live. I live in that inclusion and and in that I want to elevate. I want to I want people to know that they're they're okay. Does that McGinley clan, like when I'm thinking about your brothers, I'm thinking of three or four dudes with a few pints of Guinness in front of them. Yeah, they're all big, strong yeah, fuckers. I'm okay. getting that vibe. Do they give you a lot of shit for being a, uh, a performer, an artist, and a uh, kind of, in from where they're standing, a pseudo-intellectual? No, not really, because they, they saw right up front just how fucking hard I worked to do this. They saw, you know, when I was at NYU... They accept 45 of you and every year 15 are kicked out. And then, you know, like I told you, going to 50 auditions in, 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 in five weeks yeah. and just getting rejected every single goddamn one. And because they've all been salesmen and salesmen aren't that far afield from actors in as much as, you know, you gotta, you gotta make the sale. You have to get the audition. Yeah. And so, no, that's never been, that's never been a, a, a I mean, we take the piss out of each other huge, but not yeah, like if someone comes up and asks you for a photo, is it a case of here we go again? No, they, they've already seen it because, you know, there was 20 years when nobody was asking me for a goddamn photo. And so yeah, it's yeah, not, 
I don't feel that put upon. Uh, of course, in the pandemic, it's a little different. But uh, no, my brothers are, those are my two best friends in the world next to my wife. And there's a reason. It's because that's a, they understand, they understand where I come from and how I and they have been impacted by Max's influence on me. And uh, that's, I keep talking about Max, but it's, it would be a lie not to. Has the relationship with Max impacted your relationship with your other kids, do you reckon? Or is that something that's tough to balance when you're obviously so kind of moved by the situation of one child? It, 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 it's affected Billy Grace and, and Kate, who are 13 and 11, in as much as it's made them much richer for having an older brother like Max. And uh, Max introduced me to my wife. We were down on the beach one day. Max and I were on a rainy, rainy March Saturday. And we had two chocolate labs in the, at the time. And we were, you know, eight, seven or eight seasons into scrubs. And Max and I were down at the beach walking the two chocolate labs. And like I say, it was rainy. And I really just wanted to get Max and the dogs the hell out of the house. And so we went down there. And one of the labs... His name was Hudson, and he went down the beach chasing a Jack Russell Terrier. And so I put Max well above the mean high tide, way up in the sand. And I said, stay here. I got to go get Hudson. And so he did. And I went down to get Hudson. And when he came back, he was sitting in Nicole's lap. And uh, I, we had been working really hard on proximity issues. A lot of people in the Down syndrome community talk way too close to other people's faces. And so when you talk about arm's length, which is about 42 inches, that's, that's pretty much where we're comfortable talking to another human being. And a lot of people in our community get way, way too close to you when they're talking. And it's not acceptable. And we work hard on it. Yeah, when you and say that's not acceptable, though. like It, it wasn't like acceptable to me because I wanted Max to be able to participate in a larger circle than simply this family. Yeah. And for him to be able to do that successfully meant he couldn't be six inches from your face trying to communicate. That's not how people are comfortable. Mm. And so we took that on and we were, we were working hard on, on proximity issues, prioritizing what there's time and energy and money to work on. And I chose Max being too close to people talking as, a, as an important thing. For me, that was important. Because I, I wanted him to be able to, again, participate in a larger circle than simply this family. And yeah. for a lot of us, when someone like when your friends and mine who are, who are typical, when they speak too close to me, first of all, everybody who speaks too close, you get their fucking horrible breath. That chronic halitosis shit that smells like <laughs> just musky shit. And I can't hear people. I can't process what they're saying when they speak too close to me. And I'll move backwards and then I'll move backwards. And then if someone continues to be a close talker in the <laughs> typical community, I'm the fuck out of there. I can't, since I can't hear what you're saying and all I can smell is your fucking your garbage breath, I'm out of there. And so it was a personal thing for me. I didn't want Max to be a close talker. And so when I got back with Hudson and Haley, the two labs, and Max was sitting in this woman's lap, the first thing I asked her was, are you OK with this? And she had just traveled around the world. And this is the woman I would subsequently marry. And she said, you have no idea how much I need this. And I, I was thunderstruck 
And I said, well, <laughs> I'm his dad. How you doing? <laughs> and he was, Max was the entree into meeting Nicole. I never would have stopped and said hello to this woman. And Max introduced us. And so as a result, Kate and Billy were born. And that's just a fact. So tangentially, Max was responsible for those two lives. Yeah. And that's not lost on anyone here in this house. You described the camera as, a, as an x-ray and it can see it is through an you. Machine. What was it like playing the husband of uh, Bill Lawrence's real life wife? The creator of Squibs' <laughs> real life wife was Jordan. <laughs> and you had quite an intimate and kind of silver tongue relationship with her in which it really seemed real. Was it awkward kind of having a love-hate relationship that was definitely wrapped in a huge amount of love with his real life wife? The first time... They're both diabolical. Billy and Krista is diabolical. Uh, and they're so diabolical that the first time I had to kiss Krista, my wife, Jordan, uh, she, when she kissed me, she opened her mouth and she stuck her tongue down my throat. And I was fucking horrified. And I'm like, this is the boss's wife. And I was like, this, I am not getting fired for something I didn't do. I had nothing to do with this. So I marched right up to Billy's office and I knocked on the door and I said, Billy, can I talk to you for a second? And he says, yeah, come on in. And so I sit down and I go, I, I don't want to rat out your wife here, but uh, as you're going to see when you look at the dailies and try to cut this thing together, she, she made out with me when we just were having a kiss. And he goes, and he leaned in and he goes, how was it? And I was like, oh, you son of a bitch. You, they had, they had d designed this whole thing to prank me. And I, 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 I couldn't believe it because I took it so seriously. And I didn't want to trespass or step on anybody's toes. And I was just like, oh, you motherfucker. You both did this together. And they just wanted to take the piss. And it worked. And it was, it was all a piece of cake after that that they were willing to fuck me up that bad. Uh, and Chris is one of my dearest friends on the planet. And uh, so, no, there was nothing after that. that it was a piece of cake. The common knowledge amongst the Scrubs diehards is that season nine wasn't as good as the rest. What do you make of that? I disagree. I thought it was really good. We just needed... I enjoyed the heck out of season nine. It was, it was in the middle of a, a global recession. And so Billy called here and said, um, because it was canceled on the network, it was on here on NBC. And then it was picked up by ABC. And so the show was canceled. It was over. It was done. And so when Billy called here and said, we're going to do, you know, we're not going to do 23, but we're going to do like 17 of them. Uh, you... You can come in and because I was I went right into doing a bunch of films after Scrubs. And he said, you can I'll make time for you if you need to be light one week. Um, but but come on in and we're going to have four new kids who uh, you'll be teachers to. And uh, a lot of the writers from Scrubs were on it. And I thought the four kids who were cast from uh, uh, Davey and and and. Uh, I can't remember all four of them, but they were terrific. I thought it was, I thought season nine was fantastic. I thought it was a mistake to have all, me, Donald, Zach. And I, I think there should have only been one of us, um, whether it was me or Donald or Zach, I thought there should have been a cleaner cut from season eight. 
because people couldn't let go. And then uh, Sarah, who I love. Yes, the finale was good. It's rare you get a good finale, and and Scrub Season 8 did that. It wrapped it up quite nicely. We saw everything we wanted to see. And I think if you were going to continue with it, uh, I think you should have moved on more uh, in a more severe way. Uh, And to have Donald, Jackie, and I all, and Sarah all circulating around, it felt like you were hedging your bet and you didn't trust this path. Yeah. And uh, right, and trust me, uh, there's a lot of chefs in the kitchen in TV. So um, I'm sure, you know, this one and that exec and this exec were probably saying, wow, we really need Zaki and we really need Johnny C and Donald's got to be in there and Sarah should come in. And that didn't give, I don't think that gave the new kids a chance to flourish creatively. Uh, and be accepted on the on this new path, and so I re- I love season nine, um, and it was nice to have a job in the middle of a global recession. So I I can't really speak to it objectively, other than it gave uh, the whole crew who had been with us, as Billy always says, in the middle of a recession, it gave the whole crew who had worked together for eight years, you know, the gappers, the lighters, makeup, hair, wardrobe all those people got another year of employment. And so I can't speak to it uh, outside of, outside of the bubble of, of gratitude and, and how lovely it was to be continue to play Cox. I, the, because Cox is so damaged and, and so fucked up, it, the writers could writers can write damaged characters. In other words, the leading man's going to get the girl and that's about his arc. And the, you know, the best friend's going to get killed in the second act, but Cox, because he was, you know, this, this damaged, deeply damaged guy, the writers could continue to write him without ever making him redundant and to get the scripts they got for almost 10 years and them to be not to be revisiting the same tired ass story over and over again was miraculous. How important was Braff, Zach Braff, to getting the best out of you as Cox, though? Did his kind of style of person behind what JD was really fit the kind of beauty and the conflict between you two? Yeah, I thought the writers crafted Zachy's character so beautifully. And Zachy is such a good actor and was so great as JD. But what are you Uh, and him like in real life in comparison to JD and Cox? If you and him were having a beer in a bar... Is he actually a kind of softer, more optimistic individual than you? Uh, Zachy's really, really smart, uh, book smart. He's very well read. He's an accomplished filmmaker. And I treat him very much as an equal. And I don't know if Cox could ever say that about JD, if JD would ever allow himself to be treated as an equal. Uh, and so I, Zach's a dear friend of mine. And you got to remember when you spend almost 10 years with somebody, 16 hours a day, five days a week, just by virtue of pure math, mathematical numbers, you yeah. spend more time with that person than you do anybody in your family. You just do. And so uh, that comes with a, an arc of highs and lows. And hopefully there's more highs or there's a middle ground. And that ensemble uh, treated each other like the best version of brothers and sisters. When you know each you know, other that well, though, sisters, like you're dude. saying, when you're around each other that much, do you ever fall out for a day? You know the way, like a, a, a of course, yeah, like a pitcher's fall, like falls out of a day. Would you, would you you think someone's a prick for a day and still have to go and act with them? I'm a prick for a day. I'm a prick for a month. <laughs> but 
but I don't care. I don't care. It, it, it's, it's all in service to the, to, the, to, the, to the work. And if I sense somebody on the set was not working uh, their hardest, uh, I'd have a problem with that person. And I'd make it real fucking clear that they need to up their game. And if that caused friction, I don't give a shit. We got to tell this story. We only have five days to do it. And everybody wants to get home at the end of a 10, 11, 12-hour day. And if, if because you're dragging your feet and not doing your homework and acting like a jackass, then we're going to have a conflict and it's going to be resolved. And I'll, I'll make sure it's resolved. And the way it's going to be resolved is you're going to carry your weight starting now. And I'm not afraid to be that guy. There's a high level of self-awareness off you when you talk, even kind of the way you said I'm a prick for a month. But it's something that's not very common amongst society people take themselves too seriously people have been in denial of all kind of their shortcomings and therefore they find it hard to change and recover would you be in therapy oh god for the last 20 years it's my favorite thing on the planet i've always said a dear friend of mine when he introduced me to uh being able to talk to somebody who is really bright whether it's a priest or a rabbi or a therapist i don't care that you work you work your bodies as an athlete as an actor you work your body so hard to try to stay in shape why wouldn't you work your brain? Why, why wouldn't you find somebody, you know, we all have trainers and we all go on diets and we do all this shit, which is all physical. Why wouldn't you do something for your brain? And the, what you can do for your brain and your spirit is either, either it's a talk to somebody who is really good in, in, in that slice. And again, whether that's a, 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 a spiritual person, a, a rabbi or a, a guru or, or a priest, or a shrink. And I happen to really, really love talking to the guy I've been with for 20 years. I feel like he saved my life a couple of times. It literally saved your life or just saved you from a stress overbearing you? Um, when, when, when that divorce was happening, I was really lost. And I, I, never, I don't think most people ever get married to get divorced. Yeah. And I sure as shit didn't get married in order to get divorced. And I was really confused and lonely and, and it was very, very confusing to me. And I'd never been that confused and being able to talk to somebody who was not confused and who had a real clear map of what happens in these kinds of um, absences when there's an absence of a path or an absence of any clarity of what the fuck is going on. Yeah. Uh, that I feel like that saved my life. Marriage is crazy in that way in terms of we, we, no one gets married to get divorced, yet it's so common. We all kind of fall yeah. into this, this trap of, would you call it delusion? I don't know. I just think when people are desperately unhappy, you got to do something about it. And if that means going your separate ways, so be it. And some people, like in our parents' generation, they would just stay unhappy for 50 years and beat the shit out of each other and the kids. Yeah. And I didn't want to do, be that guy. There's a big shift from your generation to the generation before. And uh, one of them is in religion as well. I presume being from an Irish background, you came from two Catholic parents. I did. And would you be someone who's kind of now thinking, okay, that was all bollocks or what's the story with you religiously? No, no. I think, I think religion is really fascinating. I, I, I'm a lapsed Catholic, and, but I don't know how you can do most of the plays and be involved with the great writers unless you have an awareness of, of the scriptures that influence. You can't do a Tennessee Williams play unless you're familiar with the Bible. But in terms of, of your belief, Williams do you believe was, in heaven and that kind of stuff? No, that's not, 
that's not part of my belief structure. Yeah. But I'm, I'm also, I had a discussion with somebody about this the other day. I'm also okay not knowing stuff. I'm okay not knowing what happens to you when you die. If you ask me if I don't believe in heaven, what do I believe in? I don't, I don't know what happens when you die. I have no idea. And I'm okay with that. Do you ever, does I the mind I, ever go I, to the place people of just tell the... you that they do know? I think that's where I, I fall away from you because it's, that's the faith. That's that you're, you're betting. It's no, to me, it's no different than betting on dice. You're betting mm -hmm. that's coming out. Number four. Well, you betting that when you, when you pass, you're moving on to someplace. Well, how do you know? And you don't. Is you there no part of you that just thinks about kind of brief chemical existence and kind of like all chemicals, we just cease to exist? Sure. But I don't know if that's a fact or not. I've, I've certainly I've certainly flirted with that. But again, there's no proof of that. Were you ever back in the day? Because I know you were you've done films with people like Charlie Sheen. Were you a party or at one point? Was there drugs involved like in the just in the making at stage of Hollywood? I skipped. I, I think athletically, I never I never got the i was able to uh, dance around any dope um i love a pint but i i was able to dance around dope just athletically it, it never agreed with you know getting up tomorrow morning like we yeah. did this morning and working out really hard are you still and working out nothing. every morning yeah yeah yes and so that has to that's more important to me than getting fucked up and but again, I, I like to have a beer. I love having a beer. I love it. And, um, but I got to, I, I got to dance around uh, dope because it didn't agree with me uh, working out. What do we like about beer, John? Is it the kind of social lubrication of it? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It's the escape the of the inhibitions. And as a storyteller, if you're three pints deep, that's when we're getting John McGinley at his best, is it? <laughs> Well, I think where you're getting John McGinley at his best, I hope, is between action and cut. Yeah. But a couple of pints, a couple of pints in doesn't suck either. Yeah. Like when you think back to the boys, all the Irish writers and even the fucking Oliver Reeds and all back in the day, they were all pissed. Did you ever think of shooting something just with, with Guinness kind of being a consistent part of the set? Nope. Nope. It doesn't. It's not part of the way I, I prepare to get in front of the camera or to go on stage. And I, I know those guys are doing it and all, but. I, I, having done a bunch of Broadway plays and done a, a, a dozen off-Broadway plays, I cannot imagine in my wildest dreams going on influenced by anything other than the homework that I'd put in. I, I just can't. It'd be like holding your breath for an hour and a half. I just can't imagine arresting creative, creatively, which is what it would be for me. Um, and I know people have done it for years, but I, I just can't. Having just in Bl did Blungary on Broadway with, with Al and, and Bobby Cannavale and, and Richard Schiff and all these great actors, you, uh, I just, I, I, we'd, we'd talk about the Peter O'Toole's and all these people who used mm. to go on sideways. And I, yeah. I just can't imagine it. I, I can't. Even athletes back in the day, Georgie Best, I don't know if you've heard of him. People like this back in I the just day. watched a great documentary on Georgie Best. He came on Manchester after the plane crash, and yeah. uh, it was fascinating. It was a fascinating piece. He's a complete icon. He's a uh, one in a million kind of athlete, just pure talent. But we yeah, it was a well-done documentary. I can't remember where it was, but I just was, I forgot about the plane crash. And then him coming along and that manager coming along, it just seemed so fascinating to me. 
when you talk about these guys, the Richard Harris's and the fucking John Belushi's and all these guys, was their need to escape the pain, which is which is often a need for creative life. Mm-hmm. It's a need to mm-hmm. escape pain and express it. Was there so much greater due to the times that there was like sexual abuse and shit that was never reported because they could never reach that kind of place to say it nearly at the hands of the Catholic Church or physical abuse that was so consistent that they actually needed to mix both of the vices and both of the things we do to escape pain. They wanted to get fucked up and express themselves. And in order to express themselves, they needed to get fucked up. Why was substance abuse so common back in the days of our grandfathers and great grandfathers in comparison to now? Like, how didn't they get hung over? Well, they were, but maybe it just became a standard operating procedure, but I don't know how I, John McGinley don't know how to do that. Do you, do you get a hangover? Even when you're in Ireland and you're enjoying the Kinsale breeze, if you have the 10 Guinness, do you still feel like shit the next morning for an hour before you have your coffee? No, because we don't, we, our, our, we don't do play 36 a day. We're playing 18. So our tea times are always late. And okay. so we'll, get a, we'll, get, we'll go rent bikes and go around. What's the Central Park in Dublin where the Pope goes? Phoenix Park. We'll get, we go right at the entrance of Phoenix Park, right near the zoo. We can go rent bikes. And you ride around for that park, which is so magnificent. And you ride around there for 90 minutes or so. And then your tea time's not till two. So, you know, you, you, you go out to the island or you, you go to whichever course we're playing. We don't ever go an hour, more than an hour outside of town because you don't need to. And uh, so by the time you get off the bikes and stuff, you should be pretty fit. Even with the globalization of technology and stuff and how we're all kind of consuming the same media, like I went down to Cork uh, a year and a half ago and I found that the youth were kind of dressing like Kim Kardashian. So it had lost its kind of countryside beauty and escape from the city that existed. But even with us all consuming the same media, do you still find the Irish people to be more authentic, more real and equally as entertaining and passionate as you did 20 years ago in comparison to let's say Londoners or New Yorkers? The, the people that I am lucky enough to meet, whether I'm in Galway or in Donegal or, or down in Kinsale or in Dublin are, are the reason I, I go back every year. They're, they're who I, they're who I want to be with. And I am, I told my wife who's about to take our daughter, they're about to go down to the Inca trail in Peru. And I told her, I said, whenever <laughs> at 62, this is what I've arrived at. I told her, whenever I'm not either in Dublin, Kinsale, New York, or Malibu, I feel like I'm in the wrong place. Yeah. So she said, well, do you want to go on a safari in South Africa? I'm like, I have no goddamn interest in flying from here to fucking South Africa to see a bunch of lions and deer. I'd rather, I'd rather drink six pints and watch a nature documentary and call it a win. I'm not going to fucking South Africa. It's too far away. I want to be in Dublin. The whole time I'm in South Africa, I'm going to go, I'm going to be like, why are we not in Kinsale? Why aren't we in Galway? How come I'm not in, on Inishir? What do, what, what am I doing? And so, and I know that sounds old and grouchy, but I feel the opposite. I feel clarity. That's where I want to be. If I'm not in Tuscany or, or, or Dublin, what I'm someplace I don't want to be. Are, are your parents still alive, John? My mother is. My father passed, uh, oh gosh, uh, eight or nine years ago now. What's it like when the, when the father passes? Uh, well, ours was really beautiful because uh, 
dad had cancer and he was in hospice and we all got down to Florida early enough so that uh, before they started giving him meds to manage the pain, uh, you could, you could, you could be with him as he was leaving. And because he was so strong, he was so big and Irish and strong. He was so big and strong that he wouldn't, he wouldn't let go. And so this hospice worker who was a miraculous woman, she said, you, each of you have to go and tell him it's okay to go. Do you think that that stuff is symbolic when you kind of hear that stuff from nurses or is there actually an element to that? That's no, true? he was, he stayed around. He needed permission. He needed to give himself permission. Those guys, those big, that generation of Irish Americans who were, you know, their parents got off the boat. His dad got off the boat. Okay. They're, they're strong, man. They are, they were treated like shit when they came over here. And they were all overachievers, and they didn't know the, the meaning of the word, you can't. Yeah, yeah No, yeah. they were like, fuck you, yes. And they were tough, and he was a tough, tough guy. That's and what's brilliant he, about America, though, isn't it? That it's such a new country that you had these yes. immigrants come over, and you set up your own identity. Like, obviously, I presume your family were big kind of Kennedy heads, we had Chaz Palminteri on this show a while ago, and he takes such pride oh, what in the a Italian. Great actor. God, the, what a great actor. In the Italian-American thing, though, it's like there's an absence of, like, does Americanism, so to speak, without that, really only exist in the Georgia, the Alabamas, the Texas, et cetera, and that's why they are so staunchly flag-flying, Trump-voting, anti-abortion heads. That sense of Americanism, the kind of thing you'd associate with conservatism or republicanism, this whole kind of let's, without even considering debate assume that America's under threat and we need to arm up and we need to go to war. Is that more common in people who don't come from the Italian American background or the Irish American background? Because genetically they're not used to oppression or pain. So can't relate to the Iraqs and the Vietnams. I don't know. That's really interesting. All I, all I know is that dad's generation was tough. They were, he, he, he was in between wars Dad served in between World War II, which was what, 1945, and uh, Korea. So he was in that sweet spot of about five or six years where he served. He was over in Linz, Austria. He was a tank commander in a peacetime army. And uh, they all served. You know, the next group would then go to Korea, and then the next group would go to Vietnam. But there were gaps in years, and Dad served in the infantry, in the armed corps, uh, in a peacetime army. And uh, that's what they did. They just served. I mean, did that's a know, hell of a verb. Did you, did you notice a serve. sensitivity in them? Serve. That's, a, that's a big deal. Although your dad was from that era of kind of racial ignorance, would yeah. you have viewed the stuff he would have said or his kind of opinions as racist now? Would they be considered racist in the modern climate? I don't know because he was a he was a salesman, and he was very everything was in service to making the sale. Uh, that your money was as good as the next guy's money, and so I I think he dodged that. I think he dodged the bullet of of racism and and anti-Semitism. That everybody's money was green, and really great salesmen uh, don't they, <laughs> they don't differentiate. They make the sale. And I think also as an athlete, uh, he was an All-American football player at the University of Pennsylvania. 
and he had the first black roommate uh, mm. on the road. I think that was ingrained in his his sense of integrating color into his life. I think guy's last name was Bell, and Dad talked about him all the time. And, and probably linked to the fact that his parents were off the boat. And that's what I find the funniest irony behind kind of Irish Americans. You find the presidents are so keen to get the Irish vote, whether or not they're red or blue. But at the end of the day, Ireland does kind of just by just by its pure existence, lean left in American culture. I mean, the IRA had a very good relationship with Gaddafi, for example. The IRA are admirers of Che Guevara. The Irish, so to speak, have always nearly backed the opponents of America. Yet in ways when it suits Americans, we pretend to have this really nice relationship. But I do believe that it's only people whose ancestors did come off the boat that truly understand what the link between Ireland and America is. And New York and the East Coast has always kind of represented that joke amongst Irish, though, of like every American claiming to, to be the eighth cousin of Tony O'Flaherty from Tipperary. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a common gag amongst the Irish that you can't walk down the street in America without someone claiming they're your cousin. <laughs> no, I don't know that joke. But all I know is that I'm really, really happy every year when I land in Ireland. And one year, no, I wanted to go around the northern perimeter. I wanted to. I wanted to land in Shannon, rent a car, and drive all the way around Donegal up to Belfast, and then down to uh, down to Dublin. And nobody would go with me. And I asked Cusack to go with me. I asked uh, my brothers. I asked a couple of dear friends. Nobody would go with me. And so I went by myself. And I drove. Uh, I drove right from Shannon into Galway, and then I went to. The guy who just passed, one of the chieftains, uh, had a pub that I completely just dumbed into on a Sunday afternoon. And a couple of the chieftains were there. And I sat in in a session of guys just playing music. And my only rule was I was not going to drive at night. And so I ended up staying upstairs uh, on like somebody's cousin's bed. Uh, <laughs> I sat with the chieftains because I, I, I hero worship them and the flautist was there. And one of the fiddlers was there. And then a couple other guys washed in and I just sat there for six or seven hours listening to like, you know, a, a majority of the chieftains in a, in a pub, certainly no bigger than, than a tiny apartment. And yeah. I ended up staying upstairs in somebody's goddamn bed. Would you be a fan? Of, would you be a fan of the Dubliners? Oh, were you kidding me? Would you, would you know who Lou Kelly and Ronnie Drew are? I don't, but that doesn't mean anything. So the then I got man. in the car and I just continued up to uh, up to Donegal, and and then across over to uh, to to Belfast. And I Belfast was absolutely fascinating, and and I stayed in the uh, in right where Black where Bushmills. I stayed in Bushmills. There's a place called the Bushmills Inn. And I and it's a five star hotel. It's beautiful. It's a five star fucking hotel. And I was checking my uh, I was checking. That's back when we had uh, voicemails. And I checked my uh, my answering machine in Los Angeles. And I got a film with Martin Lawrence and Tim Robbins. Um, and I decided that because I was going to be a bad guy in it, that I would go and get my nose pierced. And so I went into a, a piercing salon in in Belfast and I got a bull ring put in my nose. And so I had it in there for about six months and, uh, 
So I got my I got my nose pierced in in Belfast. Next time you're in Dublin, you got to visit a place called Darndale. It's a, a beautiful kind of flowery little village. It's quite new, quite up and coming, quite modern, but quite cultural and, and artsy. It embodies a lot of Dublin history. So next where time you're it? there, you promised me you hit up Darndale. Where is where is it? Darndale's in Dublin. Yeah, but what part? I'll go there. I'll go there any day of the week. Yeah, you got to hit up Darndale. Um, you, you you won't forget it in a hurry. Before before we, we part- went down to we went down for a swim before the pandemic. So what's that? Almost three years ago, we went down to where Bono and all those guys live. There's a place where you can go swimming. Um, Dalky is it? And yeah, we went down to Dalky, and God damn, we had a good time. Holy smokes! Yeah. The water was so fucking cold. I couldn't believe it. But we stayed in. We just kept swimming. And there are people down there swimming out to this buoy and then around that buoy yeah, yeah, yeah. every single day. You got to talk in. And then we went to some pub right in the middle of Dalkey and we the sun came out. And, oh, God, it was one of the great days. Darndale's a bit of a different vibe to Dalkey, but it's, it's, it's equally as cultural, if not more so. I want to go to Darndale. You got to hit you, up, when we before we go next year, I'll, I'll reach out to you, and and you'll have to remind me because I won't remember. Hundred percent. Me, me, and me and Doctor Cox, aka John McGinley, are going to Darndale in twenty twenty two. That's just fact. Darndale. And now I got. I'm going to Google it as soon as we get off. What's the next ten years, um, career wise, uh, familial wise? Like where where are, you, where are your ambitions? You're a goal oriented geezer. Um, what's your What's the next ten <laughs> Why years? Why I got to be a geezer? God damn it. <laughs> I think I'll continue to produce. Like I produced a show called Stand Against Evil, and I we did that for three years, and I I got a lot of fulfillment out of shepherding a vision, and so we have a couple of things we're working on. I'll continue pr- to produce stuff, uh, and I'll I'll take care of this family, and I I get to I get to be front and center as people are hitting different milestones around here, and it's not lost on me how fortunate i am to be able to be present in kate and billy and max's life and nicole's life uh instead of you know shuttling off to this place for four and a half months and then going down to buenos Aires for five months or you know we did uh what we do we did uh we did a film down in uh in south america and i was there for about four months and uh but that's that's going to be a hard sell for me going forward Unless it's Oliver or Marty Scorsese or somebody who calls here, uh, it that's going to be a hard sell. I'd like to I'd like to produce a lot of the content I'm in. And obviously, you you were just doing your thing. You were letting your characters embody you. But I do want to say it's been an honor to talk to you, and I do also want to say a thank you to you. Um, the character, particularly Doctor Cox, is someone that um, lifted up my mood as a young man numerous times on a Thursday evening by just flicking it on and seeing one of the rants and that goes for a lot of right my, buddies, my buddies past present um, the same situation a iconic role played by a really really good man so John McGinley thank you for coming on the Michael Anthony show and uh, right on brother we'll, thanks we'll, for having we'll, me we'll eventually meet one day and stop in uh, pen pal so to speak I'm not afraid <laughs> good man John thanks for coming on MA show all the best good man okay Michael I'll talk to you as we go I'll, I'll reach out to you as we uh as we progress along here, and uh, we'll go from there. Thanks, top man. Bye-bye. Thanks, brother. It's been how many years, my boy. You still don't know my chairs of joy. 
No need to go, just take it slow. Podcast. And have you heard the Michael Anthony show? Just fine. What's it? Makes me see the light. What about those tears? Just believe my eyes. How's it make a fair? 